grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, Jesus Christ. My brothers, my sisters in Christ. Well, this was fun. I'm going to head home. I've got work in the morning. I've got stuff I need to do, your friend says, after a fun time seeing a movie. But no, you say, you protest. We were going to go get a drink after this. Stay out with us. Come on. Your friend says, nah, I've, I've got too much to do. I'm going to head out. Now, you're a good friend. You will respect your friend's boundaries. You won't beg, you won't cry, you won't plead that they stay out with you. But you can't help but be a little disappointed. You wanted the fun times to continue on at least for a little bit longer. And maybe, just maybe, you even feel a tiny bit jealous. Ooh, look who's so important that they have responsibilities to take care of tomorrow. Maybe some responsibilities that you don't have. Maybe you feel envious of their position in life. But above all, you just feel kind of sad that you can't continue hanging out. Is that how the disciples feel? As they watch Jesus ascend into heaven, he is physically gone now. Do they feel bummed out and disappointed? Do they want to hang on to those good times and it makes them sad to see him go? No. At the end of our lesson from Luke, Luke records that the disciples are singing and, and praising God. They are joyful when Jesus leaves. Now we could certainly understand why the disciples would feel sad to see Jesus go, why they would be disappointed. I mean, this is Jesus, after all. This is their mentor, their teacher, their friend. This is the guy that they had just spent three-plus years hanging around, hanging on everything that he said, and now he's gone? They had, were spent, they had just spent three years going where Jesus went, saying what Jesus told them to say, talking to the people Jesus told them to go talk to, and now he's gone. We could understand if they would feel like kids who grow up and they move out and they start work or they start college and now they feel like they don't have a sense of direction. We could understand if the disciples feel like a work team whose boss suddenly got a call and had to leave on a family emergency and now they have to figure out what to do next. Is that how you feel? Are you going through life feeling like Jesus is gone? Are you going through life feeling like the disciples who have a bunch of things that they saw Jesus do and heard Jesus say? And that certainly has to be part of how they move forward. But Jesus isn't here anymore. So it's us up to us to figure out how to move forward. Do you feel like your life is an adventure, not a particularly fun one, of traversing uncharted territory? That it's up to you to figure out how to navigate these modern world problems? How to come up with modern world solutions? 
Do you feel like it's up to you to take the truth of what Jesus says, but to apply it in your own way? Do you feel like Jesus is gone? If you do, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? That's a lot of pressure on you to figure out what to do next, to figure out what direction to go to. But maybe you kind of like that. Maybe you kind of like feeling like a pioneer, like you're the one blazing a trail forward for the Christian church. Maybe we feel like we're the ones who are in charge of keeping this thing going forward because Jesus isn't here anymore. He did his thing and now he's up in heaven. It's up to us to carry the torch. But if that were true, would there not be an enormous temptation to take that torch in our own direction and not in Jesus's? If it were true that Jesus is gone and it's up to us to chart through these uncharted waters on our own, wouldn't there be this huge temptation to latch on to the things that Jesus says in his word that we like, that we consider relevant, that touch the cultural pain points that we think need to be touched, and to disregard anything else? In other words, if Jesus really did leave and pass us the torch, it is possible, no, it is probable, no, it is definite that we will take that torch in the wrong direction, in our own direction, and not Jesus's. Consider for a moment how emotional the last few weeks were for the disciples. They watched Jesus die. Then the Gospels tell us that they were holed up behind tightly locked doors. Why? Because they thought they were next. They thought the people that killed Jesus were going to turn around and come after them and kill them too. Very, very afraid. And then Jesus is back. Like, like really back. Like the same body that they saw hung up on a cross and stabbed with a spear, that exact same body is now standing among them, talking with them, eating with them. Can you imagine the joy and the surprise and the shock that they must have felt? They spend 50-ish days with Jesus, talking with him, learning more from him, piecing together the significance of everything they had just witnessed. And now... He's got to leave? Jesus, don't go. Hang out with us, Jesus. Spend a little bit more time with us. Jesus knows that that temptation to feel that way would be on the disciples' hearts. So he pieces together for them how this all fits together. He says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. What you see here, brothers and sisters, is that God does not do contingency plans. God does not do plan A 
And if that doesn't work out, plan B. And if that doesn't work out, plan C. You know, that's what humans do. Because we can't tell the future. We don't know what's going to happen. I can't tell you who's going to win the next Super Bowl. But God is looking at all of human history as if it's a recorded Super Bowl from 40 years ago that he's seen a million times. He knows what's going to happen next so well as if it already happened in his eyes. So therefore, God does not need to make contingency plans. What does Jesus reveal to the disciples and to you and to me? That when he was crucified, this was not the oh shoot moment in God's plan for human history. This was not God saying, oh no, they killed my son, now I have to come up with something else, so I'll bring him back from the dead. No, Jesus says to his disciples, this central event was the point of it all. He says the entire Bible was inspired by God to point you to one weekend of events. He says the law of Moses, the traditionally referred to as the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, the prophets wrote most of the Old Testament, and the Psalms, the poetic literature in Scripture. In other words, the entire Old Testament, Jesus says, points to this one central event, Jesus on a cross, Jesus in a grave, and Jesus back from the dead. And that means that although the Bible has tons to say, tons of stories to read, tons of good advice to grab, tons that we can talk about and that we can teach, the central truth of Scripture is the forgiveness of sins. The central truth of Scripture is God himself righting the wrong in your relationship with him. That's what this is all about. All of Scripture, whether it's the Old Testament pointing ahead to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, or the New Testament pointing back to it and explaining it and exploring it, it all centers on this one truth, that you have been reconciled to God. The Bible has tons to say about how to be a good parent, a good student, a good friend, a good spouse. But none of that makes any sense outside of the context of a forgiven and restored relationship with God. And brothers and sisters, that is what you have now through Jesus Christ. That is a done deal. That was God's plan since before he even created the universe. You are forgiven. You are restored. You are redeemed in Jesus Christ. But that isn't the end of the story. Jesus was crucified and he came back from the dead. And then he didn't act like your friend who has to go and do other stuff. He didn't ascend into heaven so that he could get to that other thing that was on his mind. I've got other work I want to do as the Lord of the universe. You go ahead and take care of this stuff on earth, but as far as we're concerned, I'm done. Nor is Jesus now bored with you. I died for you, I rose, I rose for you, and what else do you want from me? No. There's more to the story. Jesus said to his disciples, I'll read it again, that what was written was the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins 
will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He says, you are, my, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Every story, well, I should say most stories, don't end right after the climax, right after the bad guy is defeated or the problem is solved. The credits don't start rolling. No, you have that nice little bit at the end of the movie or the book or whatever where people are reconciling, they're, they're living in the reality of the bad guy who has been defeated, where good stuff is happening now, and then the credits roll when you feel fully satisfied with the story's conclusion. The most important event in human history has already happened. Jesus has already died on the cross. Jesus has already risen from the dead. The most important event in your life is already in your rearview mirror. Jesus died for your sins. He paid for your guilt. That is a done deal. But the story's not over. Jesus says that his death and resurrection were part of God's eternal plan, but God's eternal plan also included the proclamation of the repentance that leads to the forgiveness of sins. The end of the, the story ends with us, brothers and sisters, proclaiming the good news that we now know so well. Proclaiming it, which means talking about it, sharing it, mentioning it, teaching it, living it, modeling it, adopting it as our life's mission, that we get this message to other people. And what is the message? If Jesus were gone, and if it were up to us to figure out what that message is, then there would be all sorts of different interpretations of what exactly it is we're supposed to be sharing with people. But Jesus makes it as simple as possible. The repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The main message. And so we dare not confuse what we're supposed to be doing here with anything else. It's true, brothers and sisters, there's a lot that we can talk to people about in Scripture, about our lives, about what we're supposed to be doing, about human sexuality, about marriage, about gender, about politics, about whatever. There's lots you can say based on the Bible about that, but none of it makes any sense apart from the context of a forgiven and restored relationship with God. Don't even start if you're not going to tell someone who their Savior is first. See, the gospel, the good news that you know so well that Ted was just baptized into is the gold setting into which all the jewels, the precious good jewels of other scriptural teaching are set to make one beautiful piece of jewelry. You take away the gold setting, you take away the gospel, you take away the message of Jesus on a cross for you and me and for your enemies and for everyone, and those jewels fall to the floor to try to teach other people how to live without telling them the Savior who has redeemed their life. That just doesn't make sense. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Your primary goal, your primary mission is to share with people where their forgiveness comes from, is to share with people who their Savior is. Lord willing, you'll have time to talk about all that other stuff, 
after they know who their Savior is, Jesus is saying. He does say preach repentance. That involves some behavior. That involves some, some changed thinking. But he says preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This sounds really hard. This is sounding like a tall order. To try to think about your relationships with people in terms of how can I share Jesus with this person, that's a lot of work. Which is why Jesus leaves the disciples and you and me with this. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. What does this say to you? If you've joined us for worship a couple times, the pastor at the end of the service does this and then gives you a blessing. I don't know why, but I think it's logical that this communicates something, doesn't it? Jesus did this for his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Why? Well, it's not because the blessing and the power and the goodness come out of his hands like he's some kind of savior version of Iron Man or something. But this gesture communicates a conveyance, a sharing of something, of sharing of something good, of warmth, of acceptance. And what kind of conveyance is Jesus communicating as he blesses his disciples before he goes up into heaven? We don't even get what he said, just that he did this and blessed them. But what can we assume he was saying? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That wherever you are, I am. I'm not leaving. I'm not packing my things and going home. I'm not calling you into preaching this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and leaving you to figure out what that looks like. You are not at the wheel of the church, Jesus is saying with this gesture, but I am, and therefore I will be blessing you as you carry out this work. Jesus is communicating with this his presence, his love, his guidance, his peace for you always. And so I'm not Jesus. No, I'm not Jesus. Many of you know that very, very well. But just like at the end of this service when we do the blessing, just like when Jesus raised his hands and blessed his disciples, and that didn't mean they were done, At the end of this service, when you receive the blessing, that doesn't mean that, okay, you have concluded your portion of the week that involves you and your relationship with God. No, it communicates something very similar. That through God's blessing, now you go. With God's presence and his peace and his love, now you go. Now you go into the work he has called you to do. But you do not go alone. You're not going into uncharted territory. You're going into Christ's own mission field to which he has called you and into which he goes with you. Amen.